honoring your father and mother sounds like a very noble thing. It's a very noble thing. After all, fathers and mothers um, deserve some credit for the child that they create. We see how they deserve criticism. We don't, we don't hesitate with that. So, I mean, if they are so responsible for what we are, then they must get credit for what we are too. So yeah, it's a very noble thing. After all, a mother goes through what a mother goes through to give birth to a child. She deserves a little, something a little more than Mother's Day. So God says, honor your father and mother. Very nice. God is full of good ideas. <laughs> but it's more than a good idea. And it's not for your mother's sake. It's really not for your sake either. It's just the way you are. Any human being, God tells us, who does, particularly a Jew, who does not honor his mother and father, can't live can't function a person who does not honor his father and mother isn't ready to serve God because they've got other stuff they have to work out why do they have to work it out why can't they just forget it so they won't keep the fifth commandment let them keep the other commandments they're not going to keep any commandments they're too busy being miserable or angry or resentful or rebellious or depressed Or making believe that they're none of the above. <laughs> Why is that? Because somehow God created us in such a way that if we don't have a healthy connection, it's a tricky word there, not relationship, but healthy connection with our mother and father, then, then we're not ourselves, then we're not whole, and we can't do anything because a half a person can't serve God. I was talking to this Talmud Torah class. They were studying Psalms. And they were reading where King David says, My soul thirsts for God like a deer in the desert pants for water. So I asked these kids whether they, underst whether they understand this literally. And whether it's a statement about King David personally, or it's a statement about people in general. And they all said that it was just about him, and it's not literal. It's poetic. We, of course, don't believe that. We believe that every word in Torah is literal and, and is addressed to everybody, not just to an individual particularly Psalms, most things in the Psalms really don't describe King David at all. Because he wasn't singing about himself. He was singing about his people. And that's why he is called the sweet singer of Israel, not the sweet singer of David. He didn't sing about himself. He sung us, not himself. So, how do you explain that this statement is literal? All the millions of volumes and millions of hours of talk shows 
on psychology, on guilt, on uh, repressed feelings, and so on and so forth. There's an amazing reality or message behind that whole thing that, that gets overlooked. We talk about guilt. What causes guilt? Unhealthy guilt. Uh, getting rid of guilt. What is guilt? What is guilt? Very simply, guilt means if you did something wrong, you feel guilty. Where does this notion come from? Where does the notion that something is wrong come from? From God. So I said to these kids, I said, tell me something. If I had uh, a hidden camera following you around for the last couple of weeks, would you mind if we played some of that film for the class? Being teenagers, <laughs> you can imagine what their reaction was. I said, suppose I have a tape recording of all your conversations for the last couple of weeks. Would you mind if we played for the class? <laughs> yeah, they minded. If I had some kind of a delicate mechanism by which I recorded your thoughts for the last, say, two hours, would you mind if we played it for the class? Absolutely. No. So I said to them, how do you live with yourself? What does this do to you? You're ashamed of what you did. You're ashamed of what you said. And you're ashamed of what you thought. What does this do to you? They said nothing. I said, how can we nothing? You're going around with all this shame and with all this guilt and you're... And it does nothing? And they said, well, I don't have to tell everybody everything. It's true, you don't have to. But what would be so terrible if somebody saw it? And if it is so terrible that somebody should, God forbid, hear what you said or find out what you thought or see what you did, you would be terribly embarrassed. How can you live with yourself like that? It doesn't do anything to you? They said, no. But the truth is that the first time a child does something naughty, something bad, and he comes home, instead of the regular greeting with which he generally greets his mother, he cuts it short a little bit. Because, who knows? Maybe the mother will find out. So you don't, so you're not quite as enthusiastic when you get home as you usually are. You don't make the same eye contact. You're a little bit reserved. You do it a second time. Then when you come home, your enthusiasm is even more limited. And you really don't want to make eye contact. The third time, the fourth time, it gets worse and worse. Until finally, when you come home, you're hoping your mother isn't there. You want to kind of sneak in. Because your mother might ask, where have you been? Or what have you done? And so you cut the conversation short. You start answering and, and carrying on conversation with monosyllables. And you make no eye contact. And whenever you have a chance, you leave the room. 
And then you're beginning to feel even more guilty because now you're sneaking around. So if you're feeling more guilty, it drags you down. So you do the same nasty thing again and again and again until finally you're so preoccupied with keeping your little secret that you're totally non-communicative with your parents. But you don't realize this is happening. One day, a few months after this started, you're sitting there in your room wondering, how come nobody likes you? How come my mother never talks to me? She doesn't like me. And you feel terrible. Maybe you're adopted. <laughs> because your mother talks to the other kids. In the meantime, your mother and father are sitting in their room saying, do you notice that he's been acting strange lately? Wonder what he's up to. What's going on? What's bothering him? Maybe we should take him to a doctor. So, all of a sudden, your mother walks into the room, sits down and says, okay, what did you do? You figure, uh-oh, she knows. And you panic, and you lie your teeth out. Hoping, of course, that she won't believe you. Hoping that she really does know, and that she beats you black and blue and gets you to stop doing it. But no, she believes your lies. Now you're really in trouble. <laughs> Because now you got to keep up the lie. Before you know it, you really do need a doctor. You can't live with yourself. You can't live with your. You're not. You're not functioning anymore. You're. You're. You're destroyed. And you don't know what to blame it on. You can't imagine what happened. Nobody likes you. Nobody talks to you. And every time your mother talks to you, it's preaching. It's always, why you, well, how are you doing? What's going on? Why can't you just be nice to me like she's with everybody else? So you run away from home. <laughs> and here you are, a kid out on the streets, and you don't know what to do, and it's dangerous, and it's horrible, and ugly, and scary. And you're getting very hateful. How can parents be like this? How could parents be like this? Allow a kid to run around alone at night. What's going on here? And you see other other kids' parents, and they're so much, so much smarter. So you vow never to marry someone like your father. <laughs> And you're never going to be like your mother. And it just gets worse and worse. And you're not yourself. You're not. F As a matter of fact, when, when a human being does something that is not godly and loses touch with godliness, in a very real, tangible way, a Jew who is out of touch with godliness, which means simply being good and right and proper and doing mitzvahs and not doing sins, the Jew who loses touch with godliness is as desperate, if not more desperate, than an animal in a desert without water. 
The animal in the desert without water will keep looking for the water, will poke behind every rock and under every bush to find the water. And if he doesn't find the water, he'll never die. But a human being who has lost touch with godliness might not even bother to look for it anymore. He may even take his own life, God forbid. Because a human being can't live like that. So when King David says, my soul thirsts for godliness like a deer pants for water, it's an understatement. It's the closest example he could come to, but, but it's certainly not an exaggeration. And why is it that way? Not only because we have guilt and our mother finds out, because this is the kind of people we are. This is the kind of creation we are. God created us with a need to be connected to where we came from. And that's our parents. And so when God says, honor your mother and father, be connected to them in a proper way, it's not for the parents' sake, and it's not for God's sake, it's for our own sake. And not because it'll do us good. It'll make us more noble. We don't have to become more noble. We just have to be what we are. And honoring your father and mother is what you are. It's not making you noble. It's just being you. There are animals that God created with the nature where as soon as they're born, they no longer care about their parents, they no longer need their parents, and they go off and live on their own. And everybody's happy. But even among animals, that's not always the case. Even among animals, there are animals that need their parents. We are created in such a way that we always need our parents. It's the way God created us. And what does it mean to need your parents? It doesn't mean that you can't ever leave the house. It means that you have to have a parent-child relationship at all times. And what is a minimal, basic, parent-child relationship, you honor them. Then you're being the child and they're being the parent. If they honor you, you get confused. <laughs> if you honor each other, you really don't know what's, coming on, what's going on. So God says, you honor them because you are the child and they are the parents. So just keep it that way, that's all. Keep it that way. You continue to be the child and they'll continue to be the parents. But when the parent says, I don't want you to honor me. I don't need it. I don't need honor. You're not allowed to sit in your father's chair. And the father says, listen, you want to sit in the chair? Sit in the chair. What do I need a chair for? That's not kindness. That's just breaking down the, the role or the expression that makes it possible for a child to be his parent's child. So the mother who never lets her daughter serve her a cup of tea, it's always, no, 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 I'll serve you. So what's the favor? In order to be a child to your parents, you have to honor them. You have to serve them. You have, to, you have to keep them in the role of parent. And that's accomplished by honoring them. So when God says, honor your father and mother, 
He is not only giving an instruction, he's telling you what you are. You are a creature that honors its parents. So, don't stop. Don't stop. It's not an interesting thing. In the laws of honoring parents, there's this rather casual remark in the Shulchan Aruch that says that you should honor your in-laws. That just as you have to honor your parents, you have to honor your spouse's parents. Slips it in there like, you know. <laughs> Why is that? The, the way we are, not how we should be or how we could be, the way we are, the way human beings are, we respect and we, and we admire um, on a, on a multi-generation level. We're not a single dimension. We're not a single generational creature. We relate to a number of generations at the same time. That's the way we are. Because we very often find ourselves in life living in three generations. I have parents. I have children. And I have a wife. Three generations. I want my children to feel close to their parents, and I would like my children to feel close to their grandparents. That's, na that's nature. When my grandparents are nice to my children and my children are close to my grandparents, I feel, I feel whole. You see, the circle is closed and everything feels complete. A child that doesn't have grandparents is lacking something. Grandparents who have no grandchildren are lacking something. That's why mothers are anxious for their daughters to get married. Because one generation is not enough. Two generations is not enough. Three begins to feel okay. Four generations is a blessing. But we can. We relate four generations at a time. When you look at a person and you say, I don't care who his parents are, I don't care where he came from, I'm just interested in the person for himself. In some way that's noble, in some way that's good, that's healthy. I mean, you're marrying the person, not his father, not his mother. But on the other hand, how much of a person, how much of a, how substantial can a human being be if his existence began 25 years ago. 25 years of substance is not very much substance. The person's existence didn't begin 25 years ago. It began 100 years ago with his grandfather. So when you're talking to a person, you're really talking to a number of generations. 
You're talking to a person with a history, a person with a background, a person with a family behind him. So it's not a 25-year-old existence. It's much older than that. So when you look at your spouse, you see 25 or 35 years of existence. So how much respect can you give 35 years of existence? 35 years worth. But when you realize that it's not 35 years of existence, it's a couple of thousand years of existence. This is an intimate part of a long chain of human beings with virtues, with talents, with abilities, with faults. That's a different story. So as much as we would like to think that we are objective and we judge each person as an individual, that's not always a virtue. Because a person isn't an individual. He's a part of something bigger. If that bigger thing is to you acceptable, uh, attractive, admirable, that adds to your admiration and attraction to your husband or wife. If the origins, the background, the surrounding existence from which your husband or wife comes is not acceptable to you and is not admirable to you, then that cuts down on the admiration that you have for your spouse. I mean, this is why we feel so terrible when we see faults in our parents. A person says, my mother was evil and dumb. It's, it has to reflect on the daughter. And a person say, my mother was bad. So what does that make you? What does that make you? It's got to have some reflection on you too. I mean, if that's what you come from. By the same token, if you say my mother-in-law is whatever, so how much respect can you have for your husband? Or for your wife? I mean, if that's what he comes from. And you hear this when people are getting divorced. You hear people say to the rabbi, to the marriage counselor, you know, really, I should have known. I should have known this was going to happen because his father's like that. So all along, even while you were respecting your husband, it wasn't completely as it should be, it could be, because, because the father, I mean, forget it. So again, when the Shulchan Aruch says that you have to honor or respect your in-laws, it's not for their benefit, your benefit. And why is it to your benefit? Not because it'll make you noble. It's to your benefit because that's what you need. That's how you function. Another thing. Talking about modesty. When God says, these are the laws of modesty, these are the laws of Tznius, before you're married, after you're married, during the marriage, these are the laws. So what is God trying to do? Keep us out of trouble? 
Very nice of him. He creates the trouble and then he gives us commandments to keep us out of it. It just doesn't seem to be very wise or very necessary. When God says, be modest, be tzniyus, again, he's not giving us instruction, he's giving us description. You are a modest creature. That's how you were created. You can't function otherwise. I remember buying this, um, going into a pet shop to buy some fish for an aquarium. And the instructions that come with the fish, or the guy, the guy behind the counter, whoever it was, says, uh, if you buy these fish, you also have to buy some uh, decorations, some bushes, some stuff to put into the aquarium. Why? Because the fish will not reproduce unless they have a place which they can hide. Just the kind of fish they are. There are certain animals that will not mate unless they have a private place. Is that because they're noble? They're orthodox? <laughs> they're animals. But this is the nature with which they were created. Of course, even animals can be corrupted, by the way. Even against their nature. But by nature, these animals will not mate in public. Why? Because God said so. Because that's how they're created. We too are created that way. We are intrinsically modest creatures. But because we have a brain that sometimes runs around in circles and sometimes runs out ahead of us and forgets whose brain it is, <laughs> the brain can sometimes come up with ideas that are totally foreign to us and make us behave in a way that is foreign to us. So God comes along and says, don't get confused. You are a modest creature. And therefore, you got to be modest. You'll see other people that are not modest. That's for them, not for you. Some animals mate in public, but not the animals that are created not to do that in public. And if we need proof, if we need experiments to prove this, we have an entire generation, our generation, that threw off all the restraints of modesty, thinking that it would be healthier. But we now know that it's the opposite. Because of a lack of modesty, we can't function as human beings. <laughs>